The following sermon was delivered on Sunday, December 15th, 2019 at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Andover by the Reverend Callie Fire. The title of the sermon is A Tale of a Tattoo. Here begins the sermon. Compassion, mystery, wonder. These words are inscribed on this pendant, which I wear. It was a custom-made chalice that I ordered for myself to mark the beginning of my seminary education. The words are embodied in our Unitarian Universalist seventh principle, which you have often heard me reference, and also within our first source. Direct experience of the transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and the, one, the openness of the forces which create and uphold life. It's rather a mouthful. But of our six sources, this is the one which I most deeply resonate with. I selected these three words, compassion, mystery, and wonder, as the essence of my theology the spirit of the understanding, my understanding of what I believe. We all have beliefs about faith and about religion, but manifesting those into coherent thought or language is a considerably more complex process. There are different nuances and perspectives to consider, how one's lived experiences have um, influenced their path of their life, the spiritual origin of um, faith of an origin family, and cultural beliefs that one has grown up with, up to the ephemeral moment of right now, because all of that has been an influence. And then there is context. So professionally, as a Unitarian Universalist minister, I state my theology briefly and to the point. I'm an animist, pagan, and eco-feminist, and I am a mystic. I respect individual truths as they apply to our principle of respecting others' inherent worth and dignity. And I believe in the exploration of spiritual practices can help us to understand other perspectives and other human beings. It's a pretty clear statement, but while it effectively answers the question of what do I believe, it doesn't say a whole lot about me as a person. That's a different perspective. That's a different context. It's a more personal one. So I have a particular story I share with people when they ask me why I believe what I believe. I've been a spiritual seeker for most of my life and especially during my adult life. I was raised unchurched, so we never attended anything structured, any structured religion. Um, the origin of my family's faith, the family heritage, is Christianity, specifically Catholicism, on my mother's side. And I've studied that in a little bit of depth as an adult, and a few other major religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Celtic neo-paganism. Ultimately, I comfortably evolved into my current understanding as a mystical, sometimes theist, nourished through earth-centered practices. And I've tried to develop a way of living on the earth that reflects my respect and resonance 
for the life and the existence that is there. So how did that evolve? Part of that journey lies in a deep-rooted memory of a childhood experience. It was a crisp November day. I was about nine years old, and I was riding in the back seat of the family car on our way to my grandparents' house, which was about an hour away. Now, I frequently got car sick as a child, and so I had developed a routine of what helped me feel most comfortable on long car rides. So I was in my usual place in the rear passenger seat behind my mother, um, my brother next to me on my left. I had the window slightly cracked for fresh air and my forehead firmly placed on the cool glass. I was watching the landscape whiz by the car and started feeling some relief as we approached um, harvested cornfields that I recognized as a landmark that we were almost there. We were within maybe 15 or 20 minutes of my grandmother's house. Suddenly I heard my mother make an audible gasp and my father said, I don't think he's going to make it as he pulled the car to the side of the road and slowed to a stop. I sat up and my eyes followed my brother's hand as he pointed to the back of a field on the other side of the road. Now, as you know, my faith is deeply rooted within our Unitarian Universalist seventh principle. For me, that interdependent web is the mystical sense of something more, just a little bit more. That sense of awe is what ignites my inner mystic, inviting the hint of the possibility of God within me and is a part of that interdependence. There is a connection when I am present in and with nature, a relationship that informs within me the call for justice and healing for all within that web of relation. The writing of late ecofeminist theologian Sally McFaig provides this framework. If theology is going to reflect the picture of current reality, then it must do so in ways consonant with the new story of creation. One clear directive that this story gives theology is to understand human beings as earthlings, not aliens or tourists on this planet, but of the earth. And God as imminently present in the processes of the universe, including those of our planet. Such a focus has important implications. Theologies emerging from a coming together of God and humans in and on the earth implies that the divine concern includes all of creation and that this redemption should include all dimensions of creations, not just human beings. So from my spot in the back seat of the car, I sat taller to look out at what my parents and brother had seen. A deer had run out of the woods and was coming toward the road along the tree-lined field. His intent to cross was clear as his stride widened and he deepened as it, he uh, reached lower to the ground as he sped up his pace. Whether he saw the vehicle or not is hard to say, or whether he was just too late, but as he reached the edge of the road where he met pavement, he attempted to leap an oncoming car in the opposite lane from us. He failed to do so as his front legs hit the front side of the car. 
He tried to stand and slipped and fell again, hitting the windshield in the, tra in the trajectory of the vehicle. His momentum sent him sliding onto the road. He, sent, he was sent spinning and sliding across to our side, and I heard the sickening sound of antler scraping the underside of our vehicle. And he continued to slide into the short embankment next to the road and landed right outside my window. He lay there for just a few minutes, what I imagine to be a state of self-assessment. And then in a moment, majesty and grace happened, and he stood. I don't know if any of us expected him to because it was pretty devastating. The older couple in the car hadn't seen him in too, until it was too late because he had clung so closely to the trees along the field. The, uh, miraculously, they were not seriously injured despite having the butt crash fully across their windshield. I overheard the woman as my mother was consoling her on our side of the road later waiting for first responders and she talked about the suddenness of the impact and of the glass that had gone everywhere inside of her purse and even inside of her shoes. But yet, there, there he had stood in that field among the remnants of the corn harvest only moments before. He was within a few feet of the car, and given the slight embankment, the elevation of the road left him eye to eye with me, sitting in the back seat of the car. He stood for just a moment, and we both held our gaze. Despite the harrowing trauma, the only immediate evidence of injury was that his right antler was hanging by thin sinews. To me, he seemed so immense and so calm and regal. It was surreal as he stood there. Then he turned and he began to limp and then increased to unsteady trot off into the trees at the corner of the field on our side of the road. This was a deep and profound experience for me. It was the first time I had seen a wild deer, one that did not live in the confinement of petting zoos or amusement parks that we attended with little coin-operated feed in our hand. More than that, it was also the first time I had witnessed an impact between a living being and a vehicle. Even being a witness to this trauma made a deep impression on me that I didn't know how to process. I talked about it to almost anyone who would listen. I even wrote it down, and my teacher allowed me to read it and share with my class the next week at school. It wasn't for any particular assignment. I think I just wrote it down to get it out. Um, and someday, at some point, somebody told me, likely distressed by my obsession with the story, that I should probably stop talking about it. I don't know how long it took, how long the experience lingered with me, but I do know that at some point, I just forgot about it. And by forgot, I mean I totally lost all trace of the story. It was gone for more than 30 years. I've lived and worked within 30 miles of those fields for all of my adult life. And even now, I'm not much further. It's less than 45 miles from this congregation. I'd driven past it without a hint of thought for the longest time. And then one day, I suddenly remembered. It came rushing back, the whole thing in vivid detail, detail that rendered me speechless and frankly searching for a chair to sit down. 
I wasn't even there. I wasn't even in the area at all. I was at home and I was listening to a radio, the news on the radio, and a story came on about an impact between a car and a deer. Now, we've all heard these stories. Anybody that lives in New England, rural or not, actually, there's, these are ubiquitous stories that we hear. Why never having come back having heard this story before, I don't know. I don't understand. Um, I've since come to know that this is a psychological phenomenon common, common for witnesses of and survivors of trauma. And like most people who experience a disconnected traumatic memory, I don't really know still why that particular broadcast unlocked the memories when others hadn't. Perhaps I'd reached a better ability to make sense of what I'd seen, or perhaps there remained a life lesson in the experience that I had yet to glean. Whatever it was, the imagery is vivid. Even now, I can still see his dark eyes looking at me, his damaged antler oddly resting aside of his chin, the heaving of his body as he panted and tried to regain his breath, his gentle limping trot as he disappeared behind the tree line, still in all his grace. I remember my awe at the beauty of his wild existence in the moment more stunned than frightened about what I'd seen. And I also remember that giving way to compassion for his pain, and that turned to a somewhat relieved sorrow upon hearing a police officer say that hunters had tracked him and put him down, ending his suffering. Theologian and philosopher Bernard Loomer writes, we respond to the suffering of another because he is another and because he is suffering. But that doesn't tell us the whole story. When we reach out toward the other in sympathy or compassion or love, we acknowledge our oneness with the other. Our response becomes his resource In responding appropriately to the other, we are both fulfilled through that act, and life within the web of relationships is advanced. So the sudden revival of this experience was a marker for me in my spiritual life. While I cannot give a definitive reason for why and when I reconnected to the mystery, the idea of it remaining locked away until my adult mind could process the knowledge or some mystical understanding of it is intriguing to me, especially in its timing. I was newly divorced from a somewhat toxic marriage and at the beginning of my exploration of neo-paganism. The vivid imagery of the memory and its coming back to me at the same time of year as the original event, because by my best calculations, I remembered within days of the anniversary of the accident. All of these things deeply resonated with the pagan theology I was honoring at the time. I felt empowered. It seemed a gift of secret knowledge long before locked away until a time when I would recognize its magnificence, even within the wound of the hunted. It was as if I had been chosen in my youth, recognized and silently guided by the ghost of the stag god, of Hearn, God of the wild, of the hunt, protected until my adulthood, ready at last to embark on my own great hunt. So I got a tattoo, just a few weeks later, forever etched here over my heart. It is an homage to that spirit, 
You can see it. I've put it on the cover of the order of service. It is the image of the stag. His antlers hold the pentacle representing the energies of the universe. Earth, air, fire, water, and spirit. I visibly marked my heart just days before the winter solstice, before Yule, where the horn god is reborn in the returning light of the sun. The experiences of seminary education helped me to articulate questions I have long had. What is faith? What is my theology? Who is God? Why do I believe in God or gods? And which God or gods? Or do I believe? And while we're on that subject, if I don't believe in God, what even is theology without a God? My theology, my relationship to that which is greater than me yet resides within me. God, spirit, universe, the mystery. My relationship to it has evolved. I believe faith continues to evolve for all of us, ever changing in response to new lessons, new experiences, new discoveries. My relationship to the gods of myth and legend has equally evolved as the representing energies have become more recognizable to me within myself. I resonate with the work of religious naturalist Ursula Goodenough in her similar struggle of what it does or does not mean to believe in God or not believe in God. She writes, the concept of a personal interested God can be appealing often deeply so, especially in times of sorrow or despair. I often wonder what it would be like to pray to God or Allah or Jehovah or Mary and believe that I was heard, believe that my petition might be answered. However, my evolving theology has not tarnished the awe and mystery imbued in this tattoo. Today it is, for me, still a visible acknowledgement of being chosen, of a sense of calling. Even at the time of that accident on the side of the road, I was, even in my childhood, I was spiritually curious. The memory protecting my sense of purpose within its hibernation returned to me at a time when I was again allowing myself the freedom to explore belief. It connected itself to something that was accessible and revered to me and to a message of power within vulnerability when I needed that power. It gave me courage at the beginning of a new chapter of my life. Life possesses a sense of unpredictability with an unknown outcome. However, it also retains a steadfast logic that yields knowledge and understanding from even the messiest of circumstances. Beneath this knowledge lies an awe of how preciously and how precisely each individual step must align to produce a given result. If any part were to align differently, the process would lead to an entirely different result. Returning to Ursula Goodenough, I once again revert to my covenant with mystery and respond to the emergence of life, not with a search for its design or its purpose, but instead with outrageous celebration that it occurred at all. Life does generate something more from nothing but, 
over and over again. And each emergence, even though fully explainable by chemistry or science, is nonetheless miraculous. As an adult looking back now at this childhood memory, I can see the symbolism that is the majesty of the deer, which I could only sense as a child. The feeling of an essence within him and of a connection between myself and him as he looked into the back seat of that car. He needed me that day. He needed me to be his conscious connection, to carry the story that ties him infinitely to life. And I need him as well to know that I, too, am connected to something bigger than myself, bigger than that deer, bigger than that day, but yet resides within me, and it resides within all of us.